National Talkie League. All right, National Talkie League uh, interview supplement podcast, Dave, which might be like the most boring name of any podcast in the podcast store. So until somebody comes up with something better for us to use, that's what we're going to call it. But uh, we're really happy this week. We're joined by Trevor Toome, uh, noted economist, very noted on Twitter for explaining things with pictures, which I really believe the world needs right now. Uh, and, and we are going to have a, a discussion where Trevor lays out for us what equalization payments are, and we're probably going to ask him a whole bunch of other questions as well. So welcome, Trevor. All right. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we jump into the equalization thing, uh, so I think I first found you, I'm sure I found you on Twitter somehow. I don't know how, but uh, so how did you get into being the the Calgary Twitter uh, economist guy? You know, I'm not entirely sure how I got started. I guess a couple years back, Uh, there's this annual conference that economists go to all the time in Canada. And I saw Andrew Leach there giving a talk, kind of presenting about the value of public engagement on economic issues and thought, oh, yeah, I could do that. So started to tweet and did quite a bit of it before ever getting, uh, I guess, a large following. And uh, the federal election campaign in 2015, the change in government here in Alberta, the carbon tax in particular, uh, low oil prices and recession, it really brought economic issues kind of to the forefront of political debates. And and they're important debates to have. And so I think it's sort of uh, people were craving some information on what are often contentious topics. Yeah, let me kind of put out uh- – what my thought on, on when you're saying it's a, these are important debates to have because I I've always been of the mind that the economy impacts everybody. Like we can bicker about social change or or, or you know social policies and stuff like that. Um, but at the end of the day, like it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter you know who you love or how you love. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. Like the economy is going to happen to you uh, no matter who you are. And it's it's always sad to me when economic issues kind of get you know, pushed off to the side because in some cases they're not as sexy. Yeah. And we're involved in it on a day-to-day basis. Every single one of us, when we go to the grocery store, when we rent an apartment, when we use public goods, roads, things like that, or transit. And so economic issues impacts us uh, in ways that we often don't see directly, even though I think you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's a very big dominant force in our day-to-day lives. Um, so uh, one thing that I notice is that you're often uh, – I don't see you sort of uh, commenting or taking a, you know, a partisan role or a side or anything. Is that, is that something that you kind of strive for just to like just the facts? Here's the numbers. Here's the issue. Here's the numbers. You guys can decide how to, to split it up. Yeah, that's what I try to go for, really providing just the information to help out the debate, make sure uh, people understand what the positions mean. Uh, I think I fail pretty often. I can get pretty opinionated on on Twitter and in other contexts, I think, quite often. But the goal is definitely just to uh, provide information and certainly not to be partisan. I mean, a big problem with partisanship is it drives people to want to deny facts or make up facts that aren't really true if it supports the right team or if it makes the other team look bad. And I think that's something that we ought to avoid. And it's something that we see a lot more of uh, recently. Yeah, but absolutely. Is that kind of brought on, though, by the fact that um, we, we, we describe a really engaged citizen as somebody who is a member of a party? And when you're a member of a party, like you've bought your way onto a team. So it's as though, like, of course, you're going to be partisan. Yeah. Uh, so you definitely want your team to win. Absolutely. But you want them to win uh, in the right way. And and you want to be proud of their victory. I mean, you could think about sports. Uh, you certainly want to support uh, some team or another. Actually, I think in a previous podcast, I'm a fan of the show, by the way, you made this analogy what? that if you're a, a, minute, a sports fan. Thank you. If, That's if, cool. Yeah. I, so correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember this, but you're like a, a, you know, a sports fan can tell you the things that are wrong with their team and they're quite open about it and they'll give you suggestions on oh they should have hired this guy they shouldn't have let that guy go they're quite open about the shortcomings of their team right. of course they still want them to win uh, we don't see that in politics i think that's a little strange yeah that's it that's great point yeah th- th- that is a great well dave actually i just like to point out i'm the one who made that point <laughs> trevor was just actually <laughs> referencing the point that i had made 
So, uh, so I'm curious. So, so you're even when you're striving to be as partisan as possible, do you find that you get a lot of pushback, like a lot of sort of, you know, uh, uh, mindless political pushback from one side or the other when you throw numbers up that the other side might not like? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of that from those who really aren't interested in engaging, that are just meant or just there to pick a fight and to hopefully browbeat you into submission. But but there are also others who I think instinctually will think, well, why is he highlighting these numbers and not those other numbers? Um, and it, it's often pretty hard to present a fully balanced view of the data on on Twitter, especially, right? You're just getting little snapshots. And so when employment insurance numbers come out, for example, in the past few months, Alberta has been doing pretty good and that the number of people collecting EI is going down. Uh, a common uh, retort to that is, oh, well, their, their benefits are just expiring. It's not actually a sign of a good economy. Uh, you know, we need to change the government. That's usually how the narrative goes. And that point is a good one. That, yeah, it might be people running out of benefits. It's it's really hard to tell. So I can't exactly say how much of that is driving the decline. But I think that's kind of a genuine um, point of engagement that some people will go down. They'll they'll seek out other data rather than just uh, reject any data at all that happens to make their side looks bad. I've always taken economic arguments to be like the bargain, right? The, <clears throat> the trade-off. What are you willing to give up to get something? And I sort of feel like, uh, and I want to run this by you to get your take on it, but I, I sort of feel like if an economist does a really good job, they just present with you with all of the information you need to decide what you're more comfortable with. And then you can say, well, here's the trade-offs that I'm comfortable with in this society. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's no such thing as a free lunch. They say life is about trade-offs and choices, and that's just a natural consequence of scarcity, right? We don't have an unlimited amount of anything, and so we need to allocate it. And in the public sphere, people will differ on how they want things allocated. I mean, look at uh, tax policy. So we're gearing up for the leadership race in the new United Conservative Party, and Derek Fildebrandt uh, and Doug Schweitzer have both released these uh, big changes to personal and corporate income taxes. And so you can talk about, well, what's the effect on equity? You know, who gets the gains from those lower tax rates? And what effect do those lower tax rates have on the economy in terms of productivity and economic activity generally? And so that's a trade-off. You could lower personal income tax rates, go back to the flat tax, as Derek, for example, is proposing. And, and economists would generally say you know, that's efficiency enhancing. It would increase employment and increase GDP. But of course, there's the flip side of that coin, and that's equity, that higher income people would disproportionately benefit from returning to a flat tax. And, and people can reasonably differ on how they weigh those two, uh, those two objectives. Yeah, I've, I've got my. Uh, I figured out where I where I reasonably differ on that one. <laughs> that's just me. No, but no, I, I think that's a good point, right? And it's sort of like, it's. I think that what happens too frequently though is that people will take, um, you know, they hear it from their, their their horse in the race. So you mentioned Derek Filderbrand there, so I'll just use the same example. So whatever he comes up with, they'll they'll uh, they'll. Um, adopt or acquiesce to his tax policy based on a couple of other things that he said. So it's maybe not even a considerate decision, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that's an important part of what we'll see in the leadership race going forward. Not that I'm a really keen political observer here, but it strikes me that Jason Kenney is also not taking a firm stance on anything other than eliminating the carbon tax. And I think the strategy there, which may end up being successful, is he wants to be a blank canvas and people can project onto him whatever their priorities happen to be. Um, and they might be entirely inconsistent with another base of support for that same candidate. And if you're as vague as possible and you just try to signal that you're the type of person that they would like to see in office, then they will uh, they will believe that you support them on certain certain issues, not just that they will change their own views about a policy issue because a leader takes one, but they will project their own beliefs, maybe incorrectly, onto the leaders themselves. I'm always bothered by how we go into elections or leadership decisions and people will vote on history instead of on vision. 
It's I mean I, I I know experience counts for something, and I know that you want to back a you know a leader who's been there, done that, and has achieved great things. But I, I just get the sense that you know when when Jason Kenny stepped into this race, just like when Jim Prentice stepped in uh, for the PCs uh, back in in 2015, it was like oh look at what he's done. And the real question is, yes, what is he going to do? Like we're we're picking someone for the next four years, not the last four years. Yeah. What I think is even more interesting is how selective that history can be. I mean, we wanted to get to equalization uh, later. Maybe this is a good segue. Jason Kenney and Brian Jean were both members of the government that created the equalization formula that is currently in place. Um, Kenny and cabinet at the time. And so a pretty influential voice on that new formula. And so they're talking about the very system that they created. And so it's either that they voted in favor of something that they didn't agree with at the time, or they didn't understand it fully at the time. Uh, not, and either of those is not, not a good reflection on their job federally. And so I'm interesting why they seem to want to pick on equalization so much these days. Dave, do you want to get into this equalization thing now or do you want to? Do- yeah, no, we should, we should do that. Uh, so yeah, one thing we were talking about, Roger and I were talking about before uh, when, we, when I discovered that you were going to be a guest, I was saying to Roger, I was like, this is great. But I'm a little, you know, uh, I'm a little uh, overwhelmed because I don't know that much about how all this stuff works. But maybe that's the angle we take things from, which is that what I know about equalization payments is that some, well, in the I guess in the greater picture, some provinces pay in, other provinces take out. But that might not even be correct. So I think it would be awesome for everyone to know. How exactly does that work? Right. And I, I want to just jump in here and say that I understand equalization like I understand the ingredients in my corn pops. I, <laughs> I know that there's corn and there's pops, and that's kind of where my knowledge of the ingredients end. And so, you know, I, Trevor, I know that you're you're affiliated uh, with the University of Calgary. It'd be really cool if we could get this down to about grade four. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's get the picture books out and see what kind of progress you can make. <laughs> Absolutely. So start at the beginning. Like what's what's the point of equalization? Sure. So back to Dave's impression, you might imagine that it's a system where some provinces pay in and some provinces pay out. That's certainly the narrative that you hear around discussions on equalization. You kind of picture Joe Cece, the Minister of Finance for Alberta, sitting down with a checkbook, you know, pay to the order of Quebec, X number of dollars. But what it is, is a system where the federal government transfers money to the provinces based on those provinces' ability to raise revenue. So some provinces just have stronger economies than others. And so you can imagine a world where everyone had exactly the same tax rates across the board on everything. Everyone was the same in terms of the tax system. Some provinces would end up earning more per person than others. Alberta's got – oh, sorry. So that's the flat tax basically. It's kind of like a thought experiment just to illustrate that your ability to raise revenues differ. Incomes are really high in Alberta compared to, say, Prince Edward Island and other maritime provinces. And so even if we all had 10% tax on income, we would end up raising more just because we have people with more and higher incomes. And so what the feds do is they, they kind of run that calculation. They ask, how much could you raise if you were the typical province, if you were some average province? And then they top you up uh, if you're below that average. And that's an equalization payment. So Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland are provinces with economies that are sufficiently strong uh, that we have – too high an ability to raise revenue, so we don't qualify for those payments. Uh, So it's entirely coming from the feds to the provinces, and it's going only to those provinces that have low revenue raising ability. Aha. Because that's the the key component of it, because you're you're putting the burden of of these equalization payments then on the individuals collectively, their ability to earn high incomes themselves that in turn uh, uh, create a high uh, income tax uh, for the province. 
that might be as about as poorly as I could have explained that, but I'm trying my hardest. <laughs> sure. So, may, yeah, let me rephrase it. Let's yeah. think about uh, let's think about within a province. Forget equalization, but imagine some cities in Alberta had really, really poor property markets and so had a very low ability to raise property tax revenue. The province of Alberta could transfer more to those cities you know, because they have a small tax base themselves. But then a, a bigger city with more property tax revenue available could raise the money that it needs to pay for the roads and schools, etc., and so wouldn't receive the same transfer. So you can imagine something being implemented even within a province uh, through the provincial government. So it wouldn't be one city paying another. Uh, so, so that's not really, that doesn't actually happen between cities. But between provinces, they don't pay each other. It's just the feds asking who could raise revenue, who has an ability to raise revenue. And if you don't have that ability, then I'm going to top you up to some average level. If you do have the ability, like Alberta, then you, you, you're on your own. You can choose to raise the revenue that you could or not. So it's, it's a system based just on ability. So how is that money uh, generated? Is it just taken like from taxes, like income taxes? Oh, or if The federal government has general revenue that it earns from all sorts of things we pay federal tax on. So you pay federal income tax. We all pay the GST. There's tariffs on things we buy from abroad. Uh, yeah, everything, the gas tax, federal government. So all the money that the federal government raises goes into their general revenue, and then they decide uh, what to spend it on. We're going to buy a battleship, or we'll make an equalization payment, or we'll build this highway in some remote territory or something. Who, who's so this, it uh, comes from exactly the same pot that absolutely every other penny of federal spending comes from. I want to know who this broad is that we're buying these things from. <laughs> What's the name of that dame? Um, so, uh, okay, so it comes it comes from general revenue because I think that's one of the big the big myths about equalization payments is that it's as though the federal government comes to the province and says, uh, okay, you guys have more than everybody else, so give write us a check for you know a billion dollars. Right. So maybe what will make this point even clearer is that Alberta has a pretty large deficit right now. That's, that's no surprise. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a choice. If we had tax rates that were equivalent to the national average, we wouldn't have a deficit at all. If we had taxes that were the same as, say, Ontario, we would be in surplus right now. And Ontario has taxes that are slightly below average as well. So our deficit is because we aren't choosing to have average taxes. So we, we could raise more money than we actually do. So it's our revenue-raising ability that's relevant for equalization. Meanwhile, Quebec has really, really high taxes. They raise more than what they would raise if they had average taxes. And so Quebec's surplus um, isn't because they're getting equalization payments exclusively. It's also because they have very high tax rates. So it's not about what you do raise in terms of a provincial government that entitles you to equalization. It's what you could raise if you were an average, uh, if you if you had average tax rates. So I have a question at this point. So traditionally, has Quebec not been a province that receives money from equalization payments? Yep, because like the maritime provinces, they tend to have a weaker than average economy. And so their ability to raise revenue is lower than the average. And that's what qualifies you for equalization payments. So, and just some perspective on the size here. Um, the amount that Alberta could raise if it had average taxes is about $12,000 per person. Quebec, if it had average tax rates, it could only raise about seven. So there's a really big gap between the provinces in their ability to raise revenue because of the underlying strengths of their economies. What is that number based on? Is that like the, the is there some sort of provincial GDP, I guess? 
Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of things that go into that calculation. And so the province's GDP matters in a generic sense. But what really goes into the calculation is asking, well, how much income do people have? That's important for uh, personal income taxes. It asks, how profitable are the companies in that province? Because that matters for corporate income taxes. It asks, what's consumer spending? Because that matters for sales taxes. And it asks, well, how much are property values worth? Because that matters for property taxes. So it just runs down the list of all the different things that we raise money off of. And then they calculate, well, what could you raise if you chose to at average tax rates? And then that's what the transfer is based on. So if I'm understanding this correctly, so you were saying that Quebec has some of the highest taxes and yet it also receives the payment. Is that because uh, its ability to raise money is lower than Alberta, say, even though it actually is raising more money? Or am I just out to lunch now? Nope, that's exactly right. Their ability to raise revenue at average tax rates is far lower than Alberta's. They choose to have high taxes. I mean, taxes in Quebec are high, much higher than they are here. And they choose to do that for whatever reason that various governments have made those choices. But that's not relevant for whether they qualify for equalization or not. That's confusing to me because if they're already bringing in a lot in in tax revenue, then, then what is the argument that they need more in the form of equalization? So imagine this... Uh, I'm a new government of a province. I cut all my taxes to zero. And I say, oh, man, I'm raising nothing. Come on, <laughs> Ottawa. Help me out here. So, so you don't want to give provinces an incentive to game the system and change their tax rates just to get a bigger handout from uh, the federal government. So everything's based on your ability. Now, I think there's some pretty reasonable belly aching to be had then. I mean – I, I I believe it to be a myth when Alberta says we give money to Quebec. That's as you've described it. That's clearly not how equalization works. The government collects general revenue and then distributes it to top up uh, provinces that are below the average. So it's not as though uh, Alberta doesn't give to Quebec, just like Saskatchewan doesn't give to New Brunswick. Um, right. But I do then, from what I'm getting from your from your description. Your explanation is that I think that that then people in Alberta might have a legitimate beef in looking to Quebec or other provinces that receive equalization payments and say, you know, get the economy cooking, do what you guys are good at, start extracting your resources or fishing your waters or whatever the case may be. Yep, absolutely. And there's a really strong argument to be made on that front that if you're provided with equalization to top you up and and that that payment is a function of the strength of your economy, then the incentive to have policies that boost your GDP, boost your productivity, increase employment, that's diminished somewhat for sure. Okay. So now yeah. you're getting into the classic welfare, uh, like economic theory on welfare, right? Exactly. Right. It, it definitely does change incentives. And so I don't want to say that the presence of the equalization system has no effect on the provincial government decisions among those who receive it. Uh, and therefore, in uh, the people in provinces that don't receive it might have you know, a beef there for sure. Um, but that, I guess, is a, a separate conversation about should we have a system that transfers between regions? And, and maybe the answer is no, or we should have a smaller system. And that's somewhat separate from the question of, given the system that we do have, how does it work? And, and, I'm, and I'm not sure among those who are critical of equalization, they, they often don't explicitly say, you know, we ought to just get rid of it completely. They always talk about we need to change the formula. Alberta needs to be treated fairly. But just because um, Alberta is the richest province and has the strongest economy and the highest fraction of its workforce employed and the most profitable companies. And the best looking. Uh, and the best-looking province, for sure. Uh, under no alternative formula will we ever receive a payment. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's not as – yeah, okay. 
people. Because I mean, what yeah. kind of equalization payment is provided to the richest, uh, strongest economy province? That'd be a really strange equalization uh, system. I believe the so, cor- correct response is Donald Trump's tax return for the last ten years. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess if if we were to fire off at Quebec and say, well, if you guys would just lower your tax rates. Then maybe you're, you know, you get some more companies moving in there. You'd be yeah. able to stimulate your economy. Could they yeah. not just shoot back at us? Well, you guys need to raise your tax rates. Well, I guess, and to the extent that we don't want to raise our tax rates, and either want to rely on royalty revenues or lower, um, you know, government spending, you know, that's a policy choice that we should be free to make. Uh, and and the presence of the equalization system really doesn't change the incentive for our government at all. It's not going to receive it uh, anyway. And if it starts raising taxes, it's going to have to raise them so much before it damages the economy enough to make us qualify for equalization. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's funny that you say, well, we, yeah, in order to receive equalization, we're going to damage our economy. That, that doesn't you, you would really – the, the gap between us and what would be required to qualify is so large that you would need to have devastating increases in taxes. And I'm not talking about going from 10 to 12 uh, corporate income tax rates. I talk about this thing, Trevor, this this toddler's mentality, right? Which is like, you know, when you give a popsicle to one three-year-old, you've got to give one to the other three-year-old. Otherwise, there's going to be a tantrum. And it, like this equalization conversation sounds like that to me where, you know, it's sort of like there's people in Alberta who feel that because Quebec – and I, let me just ask you a different question on a sidebar here. Are we unfairly ragging on Quebec <laughs> it, it is the largest recipient okay. by far, and so it's kind of the uh, – uh, it, it receives more than half of the equalization payments. And so talking about Quebec is to talk about most of the system. Okay, so it's relevant then. But you know, back to the whole toddler mentality thing, I just sort of feel like there's people that approach this argument with because they get it, I should get it. Because Quebec gets it, Alberta should get it. When it sounds like you're describing the reason that we don't – get equalization is because we're doing very, very well for ourselves. We don't need the welfare. It, precisely. And, and equalization is not the only federal transfer. Uh, it's a very small portion of the federal transfer. So the feds transfer to provincial governments $73 billion in this current uh, budget year. Only 18 of that is equalization. All the rest are, are things uh, what are called the Canada Health Transfer, the Canada Social Transfer. And in that, every single province receives exactly the same amount per person. Right. So big provinces get more than small, but everyone gets exactly the same amount per person. So we do receive, and Alberta will receive about $8 billion in federal transfers this year. It's just that we don't receive the one program that's designed to provide more to provinces with less revenue raising ability. And and just keeping with Roger's analogy, do you prefer a creamsicle or more of like a rocket pop? Oh, the rocket pop for sure. Excellent. Yeah, the worst day in the world is when the Dickie <laughs> D driver runs out of the rocket pops. And by the way, so here um, I'm not going to get too far off topic here, but wouldn't it make sense for the Dickie D guy to play music that kids today are into instead of still going with like Home on the Range? No, no, because you can tell when the ice cream truck is out there. Otherwise, you just think, oh, some neighbor's got his stereo up too loud. Yeah, all it right. be like the Calliope version of you hear it faintly in the distance and you. Get all excited and run towards it. That wouldn't happen if they played regular music. Um, uh, Before we get away from equalization too much, I remember when I was on Twitter the one time, you actually had – and you probably remember the graph better than I do. But it was like a big circle graph and it sort of showed all of the payments that all of the province make uh, and where they go. Yeah. The one I'm talking – that was a great, great chart. Uh, So that one – Take a step back from equalization. The federal government spends money all over the place. So they're implicitly transferring money in that way. I mean, think about Nova Scotia, the headquarters of the Canadian Atlantic fleet there in Halifax. That's expensive. That requires a lot of spending. And so defense spending is tilted 
um, for that towards Nova Scotia because of that reason. Right? The capital being located in Ottawa means a lot of spending will be in Ontario and across the river in Quebec just because that's where a lot of public servants are, etc. Right? right? And so you can think about, oh, I, I guess another big one, old people retire to BC. And so they're going to take their CPP checks and OAS payments with them. And Alberta doesn't have a lot of old people. We have the smallest 65-plus share in the country, and so we'll receive less CPP than other regions. So there's all sorts of transfers going on. So that graph that you're remembering, this is saying, uh, well, there's this number that floats around, and you see this on, on Twitter quite a bit. People will say, well, since 2007, Alberta has contributed $220 billion more to the federal government than we've got back. And that number is true. Uh, and and that, that graph tries to explain why that $220 billion is the case. So uh, it is things like I just mentioned. It's mm-hmm. defense spending going elsewhere. Alberta certainly can't be the home of the Atlantic fleet. Uh, CPP payments go elsewhere. We also tend to have low unemployment. And so we don't tend to get as much EI payments. That tends to go to other regions, again, where the economies are weaker. And then we also have really profitable corporations and really high income individuals, far higher income than elsewhere and a much higher share of very high income individuals than elsewhere. And so the feds raise a lot of revenue uh, on the personal income tax front from those who live in Alberta. So you add all those kind of automatic um transfer programs, if you will, that's 70% of the $220 billion number that you hear. Only a quarter is equalization. Hmm. I, I do feel the way you just explained it, though, that Alberta has a pretty good strategy in place. We basically make Newfoundland make all the babies, ship them out here to work in the oil sands, and then when they <laughs> age out, we ship them off to BC. We save a lot of money on healthcare that way, I bet. So uh, <laughs> you'd think so. <laughs> Yeah, we do, we have a pretty expensive healthcare system per person, but yeah, all else equal, a younger population is going to have a, a lower cost healthcare system, and so you're putting the the nail on the the, the nail on the head. I don't need the analogy there. <laughs> that these these transfers are the consequence of good things. We're rich, profitable corporations are located here, relatively young, employed population, and so of course we're going to be paying more personal income taxes than other places per person, even though we face the same rates. Yeah. Imagine drawing a circle around 4 million high-income households. Uh, whoever's in that circle is going to be paying a lot less than some other circle of low-income households. And the same is true within Alberta. Fort Mac and Calgary basically play, pay uh, for everywhere else in the province right. because you have regions that don't have as high an income base as those two cities. And so even though everyone faces exactly the same tax rates, high-income individuals pay more. Uh, and a nice way to drill that home is the, the United States doesn't have an equalization program like Canada. But all these factors I just described um, – are at play. The federal government spends different amounts in different states, depending on all sorts of things. And high-income individuals in New York and California disproportionately pay income taxes to the U.S. federal government relative to Alabama or Mississippi. And so you ask, well, how much does the U.S. transfer implicitly between regions because of its spending and tax policies compared to Canada? Uh, It's more. So they transfer about 2.5% of their GDP across states, whereas Canada transfers less than two. So even though we have an equalization system, we're doing less of the interregional transfers than the United States is. Wow. Chew on that for a minute. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I, 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 get, I get a takeaway from this that uh, and just kind of going back half a step to something you said earlier that, you know, if you're complaining about how much tax you pay, if the number you're citing is a percentage, then you might have a valid argument. But if the number you cite it has a dollar sign, it's because you're doing quite well. Exactly. Think about Alberta's flat tax. You all paid 10%. But yeah, higher income individuals will be paying more dollars than lower income individuals. But no one would have said that the flat tax is somehow unfairly targeting high income people. <laughs> Yeah, right. Right. 
Um, yeah, could, ahead, we, can we do some quick hits on on various topics? Would that be okay to just kind of go, where do you see this heading or what, what does the data say about this? Oh, sure. Sounds okay. So I noticed uh, j- I'm just looking through the, the, the graphs. You have quite a few of those <laughs> on your uh, Twitter feed. Uh, and so one of them uh, you have here about um, monthly new vehicle sales. So now I'm familiar with the concept of leading and trailing indicators, but some people listening might not be. Can you kind of touch on that real quick? Sure. So imagine the economy starts heading south. You're kind of worried about whether you still have a job or whether that raise is going to come through or whether your hours will be cut. Uh, The first thing you'll do is probably postpone any kind of large, durable, kind of discretionary spending item like new appliances for your home or a vehicle, right? And so new car sales are one of these leading indicators. They'll drop off quite a bit right at the beginning of a recession. And then as things start to get better and people become more confident that their own individual futures are more secure, then they kind of go back in and buy those durable items. So that's kind of exactly what we've seen in Alberta. New vehicle sales dropped off quite a bit. They were the biggest component in the decline in retail sales here. And now they're coming back and they're coming back quite strongly. So it's one of these indicators you can look at and each month, it gives new data each time, and it's pretty strong right now. So it tends to suggest that the economy is kind of pointed in the right direction. It's not to say it's fully recovered from uh, the pre-recession levels, but it's definitely recovering. Do we ever run into situations, and not just perhaps in Alberta, but where, uh, like, does it ever become the point where the economy is bad for long enough that people say, well, the hell with it, I'm just going to buy a car anyway, <laughs> that causes an increase? Or is it always pretty much when people start buying cars, things are probably looking good? Yeah, so it, you, we don't just want to rely on one particular set of data alone. Look at new vehicles and then say, oh, well, that's my crystal ball. I won't look at anything else. So that there's lots of data that you can look at that's released on a regular monthly level that all give very strong indications that Alberta's economy is now growing. And the recession ended probably in the fall of last year. So it's not just new car sales, it's everything, manufacturing activity, exports, employment, the unemployment rate, retail sales, uh, oil production, everything is pointed in the right direction. So what would some of those be that we could, like the average person would see? Would it be like when you go into a restaurant and it seems like it's more full than it has been, that kind of thing, or the mall is more crowded? Would those those kind of be indicators as well? Or so the one that would that you would really see would be the unemployment rate and employment, and that's been dropping quite a bit. So nine percent of the Alberta workforce at worst was unemployed. And now it's about 7.4%. So that decline is going to mean you know fewer unemployed people, for example. And it's certainly not getting worse, where it's just day after day of headline stories of large-scale layoffs. So I think that's kind of the more uh, immediate effect. Um, the mall has always seemed as busy to me as <laughs> it ever has before. And, and I guess that's also a symptom of even at the bottom of the recession, Alberta's economy was... Uh, the strongest in the country. And I know I say that, and it sounds really weird to hear, but the amount of income and spending that exists in Alberta, even at bottom of the recession uh, per person, was higher than anywhere else. That's crazy. So other provinces are just drooling and wishing they could have Albertans living there. Yeah, so the gap between us and the next strongest economy was so big that even though our economy shrank in 2015 and shrank again in 2016, meanwhile, other provinces were growing, we still had a positive gap between us and the number two province. Yeah, uh, so, uh, Saskatchewan some, in this case. Yeah, that's right. I was I've been out of work while well, out of conventional work for a year, uh, and it's like uh, you know just sort of hearing those numbers and thinking. You know, in this time I've been to Ontario and I've noticed, you know, that there's a real disconnect between East and West in this country. And, uh, yeah, despite the fact that the numbers say we've been, you know, leading the country, um, has it felt that way to most Albertans? I think a lot of people put weight on kind of visible, let's call them proxies for the economy. So people will look at the government 
budget balance. They'll say, look at that massive deficit. How, how can you say that the economy is doing well? Look right. at that. Look at all the debt we're accumulating. So I think that's an important signal that people look to. And that's kind of what's giving cues to a lot of people about the strength of the economy. Okay. So maybe then I'm, I'm a bit uh, you know, my my focus is a bit narrow because I'm coming from a Calgary perspective, and we're talking about the Alberta economy more generally here. But has Calgary been a laggard in the Alberta economy? So Calgary did get uh, hit harder than Edmonton just because of the nature of the jobs that are here. So the pullback in the oil and gas sector was almost entirely concentrated among. Uh, what's called support activities, this kind of new investment, exploration, drilling. So all that kind of stopped, but the per- or not stopped, but pulled back dramatically. Right. The production activities, all the facilities that are there are still there. So the production workers didn't get laid off to the same extent. And it just, because all the headquarters of these oil and gas companies are in Calgary, that a disproportionate share of those jobs happen to be located here. So it, it was hit harder. The unemployment rate rose here higher than it did in Edmonton, but it has also started to improve in Calgary uh, by roughly the same amount as elsewhere. How comfortable are you opinionating on a few current events there, Trevor Toom? Pretty good. Let's do it. It seems insane that we're having the Olympic discussion to me. <laughs> that was today. Yeah. That's right. Like, is, 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 first of all, where are you? Uh, let's just kind of give you a catch-all and you can just kind of riff. But where are you on stadium funding, public dollars for stadium funding, and where are you on this Olympic bid? Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of either personally. Um, I, I, I love going to uh, hockey games, football games, love the Olympics for sure. But I'm also willing to pay for that as a source of entertainment. And so public dollars for a new arena – uh, is a subsidy for a professional sports team, and they should just raise ticket prices if they think fans value a new arena. So that's my position on that front. On the Olympics, it's a little bit different. It's it's um, you know national pride, amateur sports, all the kind. Of, it's not really a for-profit enterprise in the way that uh, an NHL team is. But that I find concerning and that a lot of the debate around whether Calgary should host the Olympics or not tends to bring in statements about this would be a way to boost the economy. And so they're selling it as a large-scale stimulus program, even though it's 2026. We will be long recovered by then. And so we shouldn't be making decisions about boosting an economy that hasn't occurred uh, for many years down the road. Right based on our view today that the economy needs boosting. And so, so that concerns me, that I think the debate is a little bit tilted in an unproductive direction. And then the amount of money that would be involved in an Olympic bid is pretty staggering. Vancouver spent nearly $8 billion for the 2010 games there. Uh, it's not like the provincial government here is swimming in dollars. It's not like the federal government is either. And so I'm not sure it's really a prudent thing to do, at least until we get our fiscal houses in order. Well, I think both those governments have proved that they don't need to have money to spend money, Trevor. So that's one hurdle is easily cleared if I could stick with the Olympic analogies. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, though, there's some level of... Let me rephrase it. It seems like they have paid a serious political cost for that decision. It strikes me that in – I'm not sure about federally, but the provincial government here, I think the large continual deficits is going to be – uh, something that really works against it in the next election. Sorry, Dave, I don't want this to get too far away either because that's a really interesting point that that these Olympics are pitched as an economic stimulus, but to stimulate an economy that is, that is like, what are we talking, nine years away? 
So, which is absurd. Now, and I'm thinking about it like that's a that's a good emotional argument to make right now when people are feeling, you know, the the lagging economy. This will be a good economic stimulus. That's a good argument for today. But I do recall in a recent Alberta election hearing opposition leaders say we've got to put the brakes on this red hot economy. It's like a runaway train. And so I wonder if there's a bizarro universe where people pitch an Olympic bid as something that'll bring this economy to a grinding halt. <laughs> <laughs> but boy, won't it be fun. <laughs> So, uh, so Trevor, you had a chart up, uh, I think it was just today actually, about uh, the job shift. And so you were saying it's more more of a shift than an increase. Uh, so can you talk about that a little bit? Because oh, that's yeah, another thing we hear the about. Olympics, Sari. Exactly. So we've had a, a recent Olympics we can compare ourselves to. And so there's a lot of claims around the number of jobs that would be associated with the Olympic bid. In today's council meeting, for example, the bid exploration committee uh, cited that the games would boost GDP by 2.7 to 3.1 billion and create about 3,000 jobs per year. And so you could look to Vancouver. Well, did we see an increase in the employment in Vancouver after the games relative to before? And you don't. You know, it evolves almost exactly like the rest of the country does. So there's no discernible change in employment. And, and I don't find that surprising at all. If you're not in um, a situation where you have a lot of excess unemployed workers that would be involved in Olympic activities, then what you're really doing is shifting workers from something that they would have otherwise have been doing. You're hiring them away from other potential employers, or those other employers aren't hiring them in the first place. So you're shifting the composition of employment rather than actually increasing the total. And so while it may very well be true that thousands of people would be involved in the Olympics, construction and operations, that doesn't mean they would have been unemployed had we not had the games. They would have been doing something else. That's a very, is, variation of that argument about how you build a stadium and then an economy springs up around it, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's at the city level, certainly around the stadium. There's going to be a lot more restaurants and bars and you know things to do than there was before, but those will be shifted from elsewhere. Households will be spending their going out to dinner budgets near the stadium rather than somewhere else in the city. And so it's a shift in activity rather than an increase in the total. The way you boost the total is by increasing productivity. And however much fun the Olympics are, they're, they're really not something that uh, could plausibly increase our productivity. If anything, it's going to lower it because we're all going to be entertained watching this thing for a couple of weeks and working a lot less than we otherwise would have. So, so it might be an economic cost worth paying, but it's not something that will boost GDP or employment. And and that's that whole shifting thing, that's this is something that, that Rogers mentioned a few times on the podcast in terms of the stadium. If you move the stadium from the Saddle Dome to the the West Village, you're creating a lot new a lot of new jobs and restaurants and that, but you're also probably gonna decimate the ones that are around the Saddle Dome. So you're just Absolutely. shifting them from one place to another, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now everyone knows okay. my and, secret, and there's a though, lot of work on this, right? It's very yeah. hard to detect any aggregate effect, not just of the Olympics, but of any large-scale major infrastructure projects. And sports stadiums, NFL stadiums in the U.S. get a lot of uh, a lot of attention because they're big recipients of public dollars. And so they've been quite extensively studied. And you, you just can't find big boosts for a city as a whole, except in situations where the city that gets the stadium has a lot of other cities around it. So you have a lot of people driving from those other cities into yours to attend the game. So that boosts your city overall. But again, it is just a shift from other cities. So you've just changed the scale um, rather than changed the underlying point. Because again, this is not about boosting an economy's productivity. It's just about shifting activity from uh, one location to another or one sector to another. You've revealed the, my secret, Dave, but I just, I've talked to Trevor Toom a couple of times. I just regurgitate things he tells me. <laughs> so, now okay. Knows. So, so we're, you're just saying that the best way to, to uh, stimulate an economy or get things going is to increase productivity. So one issue we're having in Alberta right now is that our main industry is not in the best shape that it has been for some time. Our prices are mm-hmm. low for oil, et cetera. So if, if oil stays where it is, 
what is your suggestion to get our economy going? What should the, the provincial government be looking into or perhaps subsidying or, uh, yeah. or encouraging? So I, our problem is not the broad economy. We're richer than everywhere else. And as a share of our population, there's more people employed, even though the unemployment rate is high. So looking to the unemployment rate, you might think, oh, the labor market's doing pretty bad. But other provinces have more discouraged workers, people who aren't even bothering to look for work. And in the data, you're not counted as unemployed unless you want a job and are looking for one. And so when you have a lot of discouraged workers that Alberta has very few of, uh, your unemployment rate goes down, even though that's a bad thing. So uh, no matter how you slice it, Alberta's economy as a whole is strong. And not only is it strong, but it is now growing at a pretty healthy rate. It'll have perhaps the highest growth rate in the country this year and next year, and if not the most, number two, right? Because it's going to be up there at the top. So all the forecasts are pointed in that way, and all the data so far is pointed in that way. So the government doesn't need to do anything. What they can do is think about, well, just because the economy as a whole is doing well, that doesn't mean that everyone um, is hunky-dory and there's not pain out there. A lot of the people who in oil and gas lost their jobs are having trouble finding uh, new ones because most of the people in oil and gas that lost their job were young, low-education men, uh, disproportionately those who didn't graduate high school. So the anecdote of people dropping out and going and getting a really high-paying job in oil and gas is true. And those are also the first set of right. workers that are let go. And they're going to have a really difficult time adjusting to other activities. So maybe some retraining programs, you know, targeted programs of that nature are in order. Not aggregate, broad-based stimulus or diversification efforts. That's misplaced effort. Which uh, industries have sort of picked up the slack? Because I, I don't think that it's oil and gas that is is making the, the gains that our general economy has seen. Yeah, it's it's service sector activities, health, education, professional services. Um, so higher skill, higher income. That's where employment has been growing and has been growing consistently throughout the recession. But those are also activities that you couldn't really picture um, – uh, uh, a low education oil and gas laborer shifting into. Right. Hmm. Okay, I have a I have a, a question for you. This is based on a personal mm -hmm. or not a personal, but an anecdote that I like to use to explain uh, the diversity of Alberta's economy. So you can tell me if I'm on the numbers or if I'm way out to lunch. But people keep saying Alberta's economy needs to diversify. And my answer to them is always that it, the problem isn't that it's not diversified. The problem is that that we have the elephant. So, uh, so the story I like to use is uh, the, the Pitt family has four kids. They have, uh, you know, their son Jeffrey. He's a dancer. He makes twenty thousand dollars a year. They have a daughter Sheila. She's a nurse. She makes sixty thousand dollars a year. Uh, they have a son named Gerald. He's a lawyer. He makes about $280,000 a year. And their final son is Brad. He's a movie superstar. He makes $25 million a year. So does the Pitt family have a diversification problem in their economy? Or is it just that Brad makes so much money that it just skews everything so heavily? You know, I'm really not sure who you might be talking about. <laughs> I just think it's really creepy that Dave knows so much about Brad Pitt's siblings. <laughs> He's a fine actor. <laughs> no, so, so in that case, this is this is a perfect uh, a perfect way to think about it, right? Skills are going to be different across these uh, members of the Pitt family, and it's best for all of them if they specialize in what they're good at, right? And so if you happen to be the good actor of the family, then that's what you should be doing rather than something else, and that'll maximize the total income of the household. So this is something that, you know, all the way back to Adam Smith, I mean, the idea that you get gains and uh, productivity and and income benefits from specializing in what you are particularly good at you know, is, is strong. And so, Alberta will be specializing in what it's good at. That's oil and gas. But, but even, you know, that said, 
do we have a diversification problem? Let's put specialization to the side. If you just sit down and ask, well, where are people working? Are they all concentrated in a small number of sectors relative to other province, uh, provinces? No. Uh, Alberta has the most spread out employment across sectors than any other province. And one of the most uh, diverse uh, workforce compositions, even when you account for kind of the indirect employment to oil and gas, the accountant whose main clients are oil and gas, for example. So we don't have a diversification problem in terms of where people are working. Where the problem lies is where our income is coming from. We have a disproportionate share of income from oil and gas activities, high corporate profits, high labor income, high government revenue from that sector, at least until recently. So that means our problem is one of where we are exposing our income sources to, not where we're working. And to the extent that corporate profits are exposed to volatile commodity prices, well, who cares? That's the shareholder's problem. They will diversify their own investment portfolios to account for that. Workers are in part paid a lot in that sector because it's risky and you can be laid off when world prices take a tumble. Uh, The government is choosing to expose itself to a volatile revenue source, that's royalties. Um, past governments and the current one don't want to take the action necessary to get off the royalty roller coaster. So if we want to fix the real diversification problem, it's thinking about where our income is coming from. And, and that means primarily fixing the government budget. That's Alberta's diversification problem, not the structure of the economy. Yeah. Nice. No. So I'm going yeah. to take that as in uh, I'm totally right. <laughs> I'm just going to take that as in uh, Trevor Toom. Do you know what Brad Pitt's highest grossing film was? <laughs> uh, no, I, I do not. It's unlikely to be my favorite film. Which was what? 12 Monkeys. Yeah, not it's not that one. Um, it's not Moneyball. It's not Moneyball. Dave, you might know this one. Can you can you hazard a guess? Oh, uh, I, I geez, that's a it's a tricky one. It's gonna be something obvious when I don't think about it. Uh, Ocean's Eleven. No, that's in the top ten. It's World. Guess, it's World War Z. Wow. Oh, that's a movie too. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but I, I want to say this: his number, his second highest grossing film. This would be my blog headline, Dave. Brad uh, Brad Pitt's top ten highest grossing films. Number two will make you vomit in your lap. <laughs> It was Troy. Troy was his second highest grossing movie. Wow. Yeah. And that film sucked. <laughs> and it had so, nothing well, to do with Well, is this a good Troy. time to say that I actually liked that a lot? Did you, why did you like that movie? It's like they, they totally told an entirely different story than The Battle of Troy. Uh, it doesn't matter. Did you tell an entertaining story? Yes or no? Uh, see, now I, I'm a sucker for this argument. Was it fun? Shut up is what you're saying to me. <laughs> as, a, as a regular listener, Trevor, I'm sure you uh, know that, uh, that Roger enjoys asking our guests for their opinions and then laughing at those opinions and telling people they're wrong, <laughs> especially when it comes <laughs> to films. I thought you were going to say Mr. and Mrs. Smith or something. No, so there's a – there's a questionable movie. That's number three. And I actually liked that movie. I'll say. <laughs> okay. I guess we don't agree on, uh, on movies. <laughs> That's too funny. Um, so you dropped Adam Smith in there. And I don't know why I want to ask you this question, but I, I think I do. And we're, we'll, we'll wrap the interview shortly because it is uh, getting late here on a Monday night and we've had an hour of Trevor Tim's time already. But uh, do you have like a favorite economist or was there an economist who you maybe you studied and thought like, yeah, this person makes a lot of sense to me. This is the road I'm on. Oh, let me get my economist uh, trading cards out. <laughs> Just <laughs> pick the top knows. ones. Pick the top ones. Uh, let's see. That's a really tough question, actually. Well, you dropped uh, Adam Smith there like a few moments ago, so that's yeah, good. yeah, that's true. Well, he started it all, so you got to give him props every now and then. Yeah, let's see. Let's see. So I guess uh, one of my favorite would be David Card, a Canadian, actually. And, uh, Kind of maybe the first name pops up to my head because he came up to Calgary here a while back. So he was one of the pioneers behind uh, some new studies on the effect of minimum wages on employment and some studies on the effect of immigration on wages. And so his contributions were to tackle these big, important policy questions with very simple, clean, but very 
powerful empirical methods. So he's kind of revolutionized, if I can use that word, the way that economists do empirical work. There's a lot less focus now on uh, complex techniques than there is about trying to find situations where the world provides you with a clean, natural experiment that you can exploit to learn about the effect of policy. And so he's one of the drivers there and worth mentioning as a, I think, I think he's from Ontario, but good enough. Well, you know, that's interesting because I wanted to ask you about this. I was just recently in Seattle where, you know, they have their own minimum wage increase, uh, you know, living experiment going on, if you will. Um, and they, com- I believe the city of Seattle commissioned uh, either uh, it was Washington State University, I believe, some economists to study it for them and give them, you know, an, a, a nonpartisan report. And they did it by creating like a synthetic Seattle. Now, are, are you familiar with this report? Yep. So, yep. What, can you I- explain that? Like, what do you extrapolate from that as it pertains to the Alberta picture? Yeah, so that's a that's a really important contribution for a couple reasons. Uh, so, let me just back up and explain how. Let me first say what they found. So they're looking at Seattle increasing their minimum wage to 15, and it's going in phases. So they're going to kind of study the effect on employment for different groups around each of those phased increases. And on the first phase, they didn't really find too much. So going from the initial minimum wage up to, uh, I can't remember, the $11 and something cents, and then they found very little. But then the second increase from 11 to now, I think it was $13 and something since they found a pretty sizable reduction in employment among low-skilled individuals. The way they find that is by looking at Seattle and then asking the, the really difficult question is, how would Seattle evolve had it not done the minimum wage? So it's impossible. We don't have uh, you know, time machines or Anyway, so they they look around Seattle to other cities that are close by but not neighboring and appear to be similar in certain characteristics and then construct from those – think of them as a control group in a medical drug trial. uh, Compare Seattle's employment evolution to them. And so their their kind of average among the control group is what they were calling synthetic Seattle because right. it's kind of a thought experiment of what Seattle would have been had it not done the minimum wage. And then whatever gap it, uh, starts to occur between those two groups is what you then attribute to the minimum wage. So it's a neat method and it's uh, used in a lot of different settings. But what makes that study powerful is they also critique other also powerful minimum wage studies in the United States that find little to no effect. So it's a pretty active research area at the moment. And papers that hadn't found an effect recently ask who's likely to be affected by a minimum wage. Well, it's teenagers, right? It's lower skilled individuals. Because if you're increasing the cost of hiring a worker, an employer is only going to hire you if you're worth that higher cost. So the lower productivity workers are the ones likely to be let go first. So looking at teenagers uh, or teenagers in restaurants in particular, they haven't really found a big negative effect. Then this Seattle study can show that to be the case as well. But they have much better data than has been used before. And so they say, well, just being a teenager doesn't make you a bad worker. So I'm going to construct a better estimate at the worker level of whether you're a high productivity or a low productivity worker. And then I'll look at employment among those low productivity workers and bang, they find the effect. So it's a meth- it's, it's a general point to other researchers that – the group of workers you look at, if you're interested in finding an effect, matters. Uh, so I think it'll be an influential paper. But I, research is still ongoing. I mean, minimum wages is one of these very active policy debates, and it's very important to know what its employment effects are. And there's a lot of people looking at it, not just in Seattle, but in um, jurisdictions all over the world. Mm-hmm. I fundamentally disagree with the concept of a minimum wage, but that's I've passed that out in the past. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with you personally. Uh, I mean, two people want to 
set up a deal to exchange labor at whatever price, that's great. Exactly. And it happens all the time, right? Like I had a kid watering my plants while I was on holidays and I, you know, I'm going to give her 20 bucks. She's over the moon. But she probably Did she put work in more. for <laughs> yeah, she probably worked for more than an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Well, Trevor, um, thank you so much for taking some time to to ex- well, first of all, explain the the sometimes confusing but maybe sometimes needlessly so concept of equalization. We certainly appreciate that. Yep, my pleasure. Happy to do it. And maybe we'll have you on again sometime when pertinent economic affairs are occurring. Because we do enjoy our, we we enjoy you on Twitter very much and your contribution and and we appreciate you coming on the show. All right, you could invest in in a whiteboard. We could turn this into a video podcast. <laughs> I think that just watch the uh, the <laughs> the number of listeners and downloads fall. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> right you, off a cliff. I think that's an awesome idea because that's the beauty of podcasting, right? I mean, no one's forcing this into your ears. <laughs> like, if you don't want to <laughs> listen to it, you don't have to. But I could get, uh, I could see. You should do that in a pub. I think that like white, well, whiteboard well, Roger, and economic we were Tuesday whiteboard day, open yeah. whiteboard day. I love it. We were talking about having a live talkie. So maybe we need to get Trevor out for that and bring the whiteboard and have a little uh, economic segment during that. Oh, wow. <laughs> It's on. Okay. Well, cool. Let's, uh, let's let that, um, uh, what, what's that? Let's let that idea, uh, what do you call it? When something forms alcohol, when, when fruit and sugar and yeast mix, when something, yeah, why can't I find this word, Dave? Distill? That's kind of, no. Ferment? Ferment. Let's ferment. let that idea That's ferment gonna... and we'll see if it, uh, if it <laughs> appeals exactly to us. That's exactly what that idea is going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you can follow, uh, and I highly recommend that you follow Trevor on, uh, on Twitter. He's at, uh, Trevor, uh, Tomb, T O M B E. All right, Trevor. That was a lot of fun for us, man. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the National Talking League. Show notes from this episode can be found at nationaltalkingleague.com. Support for this podcast comes from you. Please share it on social media. Give a five-star review in your favorite podcast store. And connect with us on Facebook. On behalf of Roger Kincaid and Dave Ware, thank you.